chapter 10, and I do have a handout for you guys again. We do have pens as well and clipboards. So uh, if you'd like a clipboard, they're up front here. You can grab one or maybe have somebody in your row or your area come grab one. But I'll start handing these out, and then we'll explain a little bit more of what we're doing this evening. Should be three there. Okay, I think that's five. Okay, that should be that should be enough, I think. Hey, praise the Lord. Thank you, brother. And that should be two. Yep. There you are, sir. And then... TJ, you want yours back there or back here? Here's fine? Okay. Does anyone need a pen? I do have a couple pens. No pens? We are officially out of clipboards. Oh, okay. See if this one, that one should work. I literally threw it in your hand. Anyone else? Okay, back there, I'll just come give you two. You're welcome. He's giving me a funny look. I don't know what the look's for, but him and I can't be friends starting tomorrow through Sunday, Saturday night. Starting tomorrow. Tonight we're good. We're still fine. We're still good. It's tomorrow. It starts. Yep. All right. Uh, For those that don't know, uh, the Corbett's are Ohio State family. So, yeah. So, so I'm not really looking forward to, uh, yeah, I'm not really looking forward to next Sunday morning. Just anticipating. It's not going to be a great morning. But, we're going to be there for the Lord. I'll be there for the Lord. So it'll be fine. So what? Yes. But there's a big if there. Like, yeah. So, all right. Well, here's what we're going to do tonight. So we've been doing this now for a couple months. And uh, uh, I genuinely pray that it's been an encouragement to you. Um, what you have before you is a print-off of Mark 10, 17 through 27. And so what we've been doing is giving you a handout. And then what I'm going to do is give you about 10 minutes to go through the passage. So what we're doing is we're making observations. We're noting things in the text. We're looking at locations, uh, individuals, names, uh, who's saying what, if there's a conversation, uh, noticing questions, answers, um, just all kinds of observations like that. Um, references to what's being talked about. Uh, again, who's doing the speaking and what kind of the point is. Um, also, it's encouraging sometimes to break up the text into groupings of topic that might help you understand it. So we're just making observations. So whatever it is, as you read through here, 
that jumps out to you, that catches your eye, uh, that you believe gives you help in understanding what the text is talking about. So then what we're going to do is after we make a bunch of observations on our own, is we'll talk through what the text is saying and how we can apply it to our lives. And so a very simple process for Bible study, um, and I've said this all along, we started doing this through the book of Psalms and took a handful of Psalms and did this, and we've done it with a couple other passages as well. And so again, I pray that this is helping you to kind of develop the habit of how to interpret the Bible, which is really letting the Bible speak for itself, right? We don't want to read into Scripture. We want Scripture to tell us what we should believe. So we don't go to Scripture and say, okay, you have to say this or you have to mean that. We let Scripture tell us what it means, okay? So that's what we're practicing. That's what we're doing over the last so many weeks and continue to do is we want Scripture to teach us, okay? So I'm going to give you 10 minutes. There'll be a little music so it's not too awkwardly silent. Take some time individually, look at the text, read it through, make some observations, and then we'll come back and talk about it in just a couple minutes.
but we'll go ahead and jump in. So hopefully you guys had a chance to kind of work through the passage. Um, as I do every week, I encourage you to, uh, if you didn't finish or make more notes and observations as we talk through the passage, um, obviously very familiar passage, right? Most of us know this passage. We've heard from this passage before. We've studied it. We've read it. Uh, we know it. Um, one of the famous moments in this passage is because it's dealing with the rich young ruler, Okay, which many of your Bibles or your study Bibles already have a heading over that. Uh, we don't know much about this man, uh, other, that he was, other than that he was apparently young, and he was apparently very wealthy. And so we're going to break this apart this evening. Um, I do want to actually encourage you, the, the focus of this is going to be breaking apart the passage, but in application, we're actually going to kind of maybe draw it to a little bit of different, different application uh, because of how the passage ends. And so that's where we're going to kind of spend some time at the end as well. Um, so when we jump into this, The first thing you want to note is this is found in the other Gospels, right? We know this is also found in uh, Luke 18, um, and I believe Matthew 19, if I'm thinking correctly, right in those areas there. I might be a chapter off in Matthew, but um, it's in that neighborhood. And so this is a familiar passage even among the Gospels, okay? And I find that interesting that Jesus put this in, or that God allowed this to be in the Gospel messages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so again, that tells me it's very important. Now, what's interesting about this passage that many people have found kind of interesting to read about and study about is this is Jesus sharing the gospel, right? This is Jesus sharing the salvation message. And so, so often we, we take this passage and we apply it to the rich young ruler and we make it so specific that we miss the general principles that are found in any time we share the gospel, And so we have to kind of draw from this, not only what did Jesus tell this man about salvation and the gospel, but what then do we take from this and how we share the gospel, how we communicate the gospel to others. And so in my notes where I put kind of a heading over this, uh, I just put down, with God it is possible. That's kind of what came to my mind when I was thinking about this passage and how it ends and how we're going to draw it to a conclusion. With God it is possible. So let's look at the first two verses in our text. Mark 10, 17, and 18. Again, when we do this, uh, when you do studies like this, uh, try to take more than five verses. Okay, Usually about five verses or so will give you a good idea of context. We don't really want to do this necessarily with just one verse. This is how we can kind of get in trouble when we do what I call like Facebook verses. Right? We just pull a verse out that sounds good. We smack it on Facebook, get a lot of likes. But oftentimes, we have to be careful because sometimes maybe we're not applying that verse the right way. We're not using that verse the right way. So when we study out a passage, we want to take a good chunk of verses to get a good idea of what's being talked about in that passage before and after. It gives us a good idea of where we're going. So Mark's a little unique in his gospel because he's very bullet point type gospel. It's, it's very much like Jesus was here and Jesus was there and Jesus did this and Jesus did that. There's not a lot of like what we found in the gospel of John. There's not a lot of backstory. In John, you see a lot of conversations, a lot more detail is given to things. Mark is more just kind of, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. Um, Mark is uh, who in the scriptures? Who is Mark? What else do we know of Mark, this Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark? Just a little back, back observation on the author. Who is this Mark? Okay, is he, let's ask a question. Is he one of the original 12 apostles? No. Okay, let's try again. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Yes, yeah, so what's his... 
we also know him by another way, John Mark in the book of Acts. This is the same Mark, if you guys remember the first time they went on a missionary trip. Remember Paul and Barnabas, they take John Mark along. What does John Mark do once they get not too far into the trip? He leaves, okay? We don't know why. Many people assume it's just because of fear of persecution. And if you, I mean, if you hung out with Paul, you were persecuted. Like that's just, I mean, this man went through a lot. Silas, Barnabas, they all were to some degree persecuted. So he leaves, okay? Then what happens is they, they get back with their trip. They finish it up. They're going on their next trip. What, what does Barnabas suggest? Let's take John Mark. Might be an encouragement to him. What does Barnabas's name mean? Son of encouragement, right? He's the one that encouraged the apostles to believe Paul was really converted. So here we see that this idea that Barnabas's heart is one of comfort, one of encouragement, one of wanting to walk with these individuals to help train them up. And so I want to encourage you that when you see someone that maybe others in the church have kind of said, yeah, I don't know. They're not real gifted. I don't know if they're really called. Be careful. I would much rather come alongside somebody and say, hey, you can do what God is calling you to do than push someone down that God is calling to do something. Okay? So Barnabas did this for Paul. Paul appreciated that. Barnabas does this and wants to do this for John Mark. What does Barnabas or what does Paul think about Barnabas's suggestion of bringing John Mark along? No. Why doesn't Paul want to bring him? He's just going to leave again, right? So is that holding John Mark's past against him a little bit? Yeah. Is that grace? No. We have no idea what John Mark said. Maybe John Mark was like, hey, I'm really sorry. I should have probably went through with that. We don't know. Right? Maybe he was not even interested. Maybe he hasn't shown any interest in the trip. But Barnabas is just thinking, let's just bring him along. It'll be a great encouragement to him. It'll be a great, you know, comfort to him. Now, the Bible says in the book of Acts that their division over this was so sharp that they parted ways. But I love this about this story. Neither one of them quit the ministry. They both went, hey, you take John Mark and go to Cyprus. I'll take Silas and we'll continue on our missionary journeys. And now later on in the life of Paul, we read that he talks about John Mark and says he's beneficial to the ministry. This is the John Mark that we call Mark who wrote this gospel. Now, how did John Mark or Mark know all of the things he wrote in this gospel? Well, obviously we could say, well, he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay. But how did Mark get all these accounts, these firsthand accounts of the life of Christ? Who influenced John Mark's writing? Now, we want to say Barnabas. It's not Barnabas and it's not Paul. Because neither one of them were firsthand account like witnesses, right? They, didn't, they weren't one of the apostles. Peter. Okay, Peter influenced John Mark. Okay, from scripture we understand that that's who had an influence on that. When you read Mark's gospel, you see accounts and things like that that would relate to first and second Peter. So, here we see this idea of a background on who Mark is. So, let's read the, verse, the first two verses, 17 and 18. Uh, would someone like to read that for us? I know it's right in front of everybody, but Jeff, awesome, thank you. Okay, so we understand here we see, we recognize who Jesus is. We're going to recognize who Jesus is. Now, the rich young ruler approaches Christ. And in what posture does he approach Christ? What do we see from the text? Okay, he kneels. Do you also see that word running? So when I'm, when I'm reading through here, I'm looking for words like that. 
How are they approaching Jesus? How are they coming to him? Does it describe their attitude, their actions, their, their mannerisms? How are they coming to him? And so he came running and knelt down before Christ. What does he call him when he addresses him? Good master. Okay. So again, in some translations, you'll see both good and master are capitalized. It's a title. He's honoring him with this title. And then what's the question? What is the question the rich young ruler wants to know? Yeah, how, how do I get eternal life? That's a very important question. Right? It, it's great that this man is coming to Christ and asking this question. There's no one else on planet Earth at this time that you want to ask this question to than Jesus. Now we pause here and we think about another story where Jesus shared the gospel. Famous account, John chapter 3, Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes in. Some say he came at night because he was afraid. I don't believe that. I believe he came at night because he wanted one-on-one time with Jesus. I don't see him fearful later when he defends Christ to the Sanhedrin. And I don't see him fearful later when he ends up bringing an offering at the burial of Christ with Joseph of Arimathea. They come and bring a hundred-pound weight of offering, of spices and aromas. That's not somebody who's trying to hide a love for Christ or care for Christ, okay? So I don't think he was afraid. But he comes to Jesus. He gives Jesus a title, right? He actually says, we know you've come from God because no one can do what you've done. John 2 records miracles that Jesus did. No one can do what you've done unless they came from God. He's honoring him. He never actually asks this question. He doesn't ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus answers that question. Why? Because that's really why Nicodemus came. Jesus kind of just cut to the point. Let me just answer the question of why you came. And he speaks to this idea. So there's nothing wrong with this question. But in both cases, Jesus has to encourage these men to get out of their own way, to admit some things, to come to some understandings. And so he's going to do that. Now, what is Jesus' response in verse 18? Jesus said to him, why callest thou me good? There's none good and no one good but one, and that is God. Now you can jot it out there somewhere. You probably already have if you're thinking about other verses or other passages. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous. No, not one. None of us are born righteous. We talked about that this morning. None of us are born perfect. We're all born in sin. Now, some have used this to criticize Jesus and say that he was claiming something here that he wasn't claiming. What might Jesus be... What could you accuse Jesus of claiming here? If you're thinking from a a worldly perspective. Go ahead, Danielle. That he's not God. Because what does he say? He says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but one. That is God. Some have said, well, see, Jesus is saying he's not God. Some have accused him of that. That's not what Jesus was saying. We read it that way and we go, wow, it sure sounds like he's saying, I'm not good. I'm not God. There's only one. And He's God. I would tend to suggest what Jesus is actually doing here is challenging the heart of the man. He's challenging this man to say, you just called me good. There's only one that's good and that's God. And I know your heart. You don't think I'm God. That's how I tend to read this. Because he's trying to get this man to realize something. Who do you believe me to be? That's really the core of salvation, isn't it? Salvation is about who are we before God, unrighteous sinners, and who is Jesus Christ? God in the flesh, right? God incarnate, who died on the cross, was buried and rose again to forgive us of our sins. We have to come to that understanding. That's the the core of the gospel. 
If I come thinking I'm not a sinner, but believe that Jesus is the son of God, I cannot be saved. Because I can't repent of sins that I don't believe I've committed, so I can't humble myself and receive salvation. I can come guilty and shamed and know that I've sinned, but if I don't believe that he is God, and I don't believe he died on the cross for my sins and that that's sufficient, I can't be saved. We have to understand who we are and who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus is trying to get this young man to admit. So he tells him, he says, hey, you say that I'm good, but there's only one good, that is God. Now, the man could have responded and said, you're right, and you are Lord. What did Peter say? You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, right? He could have responded with a word of testimony after Jesus gives him the answer to his question, but we're going to see, excuse me, in a moment, he doesn't go there. Now, if you notice there, we're going to read some verses here, but drop down to verse 20. Now, we're going to read the whole passage in just a second here. But this is the next time he speaks. If he believed he was God, or he was good, rather. He believed he was good, and Jesus just said, there's only one good, that is God. And this man, being a Jew, could have connected the dots and went, well, then you're the Messiah. But notice what he says in verse 20. How does he address him? He's dropped good from the title. Now, some would say, oh, you're just reading into the text. You're making more of it than there really is. I read that, and to me, I see that as the man made a decision. He was rebuked by Christ for calling Christ good, because there's only one good, that is God. And here he makes a decision to say, okay, I'm not going to make that mistake again. You're just master. So apparently, from the text, seems to me, he doesn't believe he's God. So now Jesus is, again, not really elevated into deity or as the divine. So let's jump into the next section here. So the next section would be, in my mind, verses 19 through 22. So if you want to bracket these, you can. Sometimes that helps me in study. 17 and 18, recognize who Jesus is. 19 through 22, recognize who we are. Recognize who we are. So can I get a volunteer that would like to read verses 19 through 22? I know if you're like me, you've already drawn and written all over this thing. So it's kind of like, oh, I got to read this now. Sometimes I underline things that don't stay where they're supposed to be underlined. You know, it goes down to the next word. Who would like to read that for us? 19 through 22. Okay, go ahead, brother. Okay, so here we see we recognize who we are. So what does Jesus give him as an answer of how to inherit eternal life? Uh, not quite. We're almost, we're almost going to get there. What's the initial response? Okay, it says, what does the law say? Keep the law. Now, can we keep the law perfectly as fallen man? No, they never could. This is actually the whole thing in Acts chapter 15. Uh, when the Jews are trying to tell 
Gentile Christians, they have to conform to the law to be truly saved. Peter stands up and says, we couldn't keep the law. Our fathers couldn't keep the law. Why would we think that these Gentiles could keep the law? That was the whole point of his argument. But Jesus then basically says, keep the law. To gain eternal life, keep the commandments. Be perfect. Keep my law perfectly. Okay? What does the man actually respond with? He responds in pride. Now, the commandments... Right, so I was just going to get to that. He doesn't only count them out of order or quote them out of order. He also quotes only some of them. He doesn't quote even the whole ten, right? He actually quotes commandments five through nine. Five through nine is roughly what he quotes, okay? Now, the reason I think that we can be okay with him quoting them out of order is because when you read the account in Exodus 20 and even later in Exodus when they get, it's not second commands, but when they get the commands again, there is some variation in the wording even a little bit among the commands. So I'm okay with that because, again, Jesus isn't quoting them verbatim from Exodus saying, you know, verse 19, verse 20. He's giving him what? What did Jesus always do with the law? The heart of the law. The spirit of the law. So it always bothered me, not so much that they were out of order, but more that he doesn't give them all ten. What about one through four? Okay? Now, I have a couple ideas on this. Well, that's what I was going to say. So, no, no, you're good. You're good. That's exactly it. So these commandments deal more with human-to-human relationships, okay? So there's a couple thoughts on this in my studies on this. I couldn't really find anything about why he quoted them out of order other than Jesus just spoke it the way he wanted to speak it. I, I don't know. I mean, he doesn't do anything by accident, obviously. But as far as why these commands, leaving out also not only one through four, but also number 10. What is number 10? What's that last commandment? It's on the wall back there on the banner, if you want to look. Do not covet, right? Do not covet. Why do you think he left off number 10? He was rich. He didn't covet nothing. He was like, I, I don't covet. I've got everything I ever wanted, right? One through four, it's interesting. He leaves that off. And I, again, in my studies, um, why did Jesus quote these commandments and not one through four? We obviously do not know the exact reason. So we have to go there first. Okay, there's a lot of things in Scripture we don't know the exact reason. I had a friend of mine text me today and say, how old do you think Isaac was when Abraham attempted to sacrifice him and God stopped him? And I was like, I I don't know. And he's like, well, I think it was this, and I've heard this, and this, and this. 18 to 33 is the guesses, okay? And there's no real way we know. We have an idea of about 18 to 35, but we don't know. But it's things like that in Scripture that we do kind of scratch our heads and wonder about. So why these verses? Well, we don't know for sure, but maybe it is because this man was doing these things and not following one through four. So Jesus could set up the application. Maybe Jesus chose these ones because in this man's pride, he could think, oh, I've been doing that. I'm good. I'm good to go. I'm doing this. Rather than saying in humility, Lord, I, I know I'm not perfect. I've sinned, but he actually says, oh, I've done all those. So it could be Jesus actually giving him an opportunity to own up to something and not in pride say, oh, I've done all that. Again, getting him maybe to recognize his own sinful pride. Also, it could be because he's going to then apply verse or commandments one through four and say, yeah, you've done those, but you haven't done these. Showing him that even though you've only offended in one area, you've really offended in all, which James tells us later in the New Testament. 
So he could be just setting this man up, not, not in a bad way, but I mean getting him to think about these things, to kind of put the conversation in the right light. So Jesus, knowing the man's heart, gave him a chance to admit where he lacked. If you're keeping five through nine, you're not coveting, okay? But maybe you're not doing great with one, have no other gods before me, and his wealth was his God. And Jesus says, you know the commandments, and he names them all off. What if the guy said, you're right, I've done those, but I haven't done these ones that you omitted. I have kept those, but I have had other gods. I have had other idols. I haven't done this. I haven't. It would have been a lot more of a, a humility if he would have approached it that way. But he just says, I've done all those since my youth. Period. I'm good. I'm righteous. And remember, the law was given to break the heart of the proud so that we would realize our inability to be saved on our own merits and to lead us to the need for grace. So what does Jesus then do? He gives him the heart of the other commandments, specifically the first one. To this, he gives the spirit of the first commandment and calls him to give up his possessions and follow him. That's what it says there in uh, verse 21. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. I really hope you circled that. That is, don't miss that. Why is Jesus saying, that sounds so harsh. You know why Jesus was saying that? Because he loves the man. Now, isn't it amazing? Does Jesus know how this conversation is going to end? But the man's rejection of Christ, or seeming rejection of Christ, does not negate the love of God for the man. This is why John 3.16 is still true. And yet still people will be punished in a place called hell because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I had to quote that one because I really slaughtered the other one this morning. I still, I was, I don't know what was going on there. But how can that be? People have said that. Well, if God is so loving, how could he send people to hell? He is very loving even to those who reject him. But his love is not a forced love. He loves you so much, he sent his son to die for you. And if you choose to reject that, God has given you that opportunity to either believe or not believe. He's given a measure of faith to all mankind. But we, by God's grace, have been given a choice. What we do with the gospel is our choice. But it doesn't negate the love of God for all mankind. And I love that Mark includes that phrase. But Jesus beheld him in his pride, in his sin, in his self-righteousness, and loved him. We would not love him. We would not want to be around him. We would say, oh, you're, you're never going to get it. You're so self-righteous. Nick, you're so awesome. But Jesus looked at him. And I think that love was really a pity. It was a compassion. What does it say even in Matthew? Jesus looked on the multitudes and he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep with no shepherd. See, he loves this man. And he loves him so much, look what he says to him. Which, does this sound loving to the rich young ruler? No. It sounds harsh. It says, one thing thou lackest. Now, was it really one thing? Why do you think he said one thing? Okay, I like that. It's the main thing. Why do you say one thing? Because the man thought he was good. 
It's almost, I almost see a little bit of irony here. Yeah, you're right. You've got everything figured out. Let me tell you the one thing you lack. Think about the, the book of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches. He lists all the things they're doing good. Then what does he say? One thing I have against you. It's not really one thing, but it's a way of saying, I'm going to draw your attention to this key thing that's really the biggest issue. And nine times out of 10, or maybe 10 times out of 10, it's the heart issue, right? It's the heart of the individual. So he goes on to say this. So whatsoever thou hast, so sell it, don't give it away, sell it, and give it to the poor. So what is he given to the poor? The money he just made from the profit of selling everything he has, okay? So give up all your stuff, sell what you have, get rid of it, take all that money that you just made, give it to the poor. Then, or and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. So right there, you can jot down Matthew chapter 6, 19 and 20. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6? Don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven, right? Because here people can break in and steal and it corrodes. I've always heard it said, the treasures you hold today are going to be garage sale finds tomorrow or in a dumpster somewhere 10, 20 years from now, right? We, we value these things so much and we forget these are just things. So Jesus says, don't focus on the things in this world. Lay up treasures in heaven. How do we lay up treasures in heaven? By knowing Christ and the things we do for Christ. So that's what he's referring to here. He says, listen, if you do that, you'll have treasure in heaven. It's, it doesn't make sense to us. It's a contradiction. But if I sell everything and give it away, I have no treasure. I have nothing. But you're telling me if I do that, I'll actually gain heavenly treasures. And this is the spiritual economy of God. We have to understand this. Then he says this, and come, take up the cross and follow me. These are not necessarily saying that you work for salvation. What he's saying is, this is the evidence of your faith that I am God. If you believe that I am God, you will follow me. You will take up your cross, which means to be willing to die. You'll get rid of all of your stuff because I'm asking you to. And you'll understand there's something greater in heaven. But again, this is Jesus sharing the gospel. Our gospel presentations in our day and age today in church don't include these things. God loves you. Believe on him. Your life will be great. We actually hear people preach the gospel and encourage them with all the treasure they'll get in this earth, in this world. Oh, if you get saved, then you'll have all the money you want. Jesus says the exact opposite. Get rid of all of that. Focus on treasure in heaven. If you get saved, God will be your genie. He'll do whatever you want. No, Jesus says, take up your cross, be willing to die. Follow your heart, follow your emotions, follow the culture. Jesus says, follow me. The man left from this conversation in what state? Grieved. He actually says in verse 22, and he was sad, so you can circle that, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Now, grieved in the original language actually gives the idea of storm clouds gathering. When I looked it up in the original language, it was talking about say, the storm cloud gathering, like this dark, kind of ominous, depressing. He was just grieved. He was heartbroken. And he walked away from this conversation that way because he had so much and did not want to part with it. But this is natural. And if you want to think of it this way, his response is 100% human. This is how every human being will respond when presented with this gospel call, even from the person of Christ, if 
they don't know who's calling them to follow him. Follow me, give up everything, be willing to lay down your life, makes no sense unless you know who the me is. But once you know who the me is, you'll do everything that's asked of you, and you'll do it joyfully. Because you realize, this is the Son of God, this is Messiah, this is my Savior. So this response of the rich young ruler is natural. When we don't believe who Christ really is, we will not be willing to lay down all for him, including our lives. So, we recognize who we are. We recognize who Jesus is. Last part of the passage here, we recognize what God can do. We recognize what God can do. So verses 23 through 27, one more volunteer that would like to read for us. 23, thank you, Renee. Okay, so this happens, right? This whole encounter, this real-life conversation happens. And as soon as the man walks away, what does Jesus use this conversation to do? Teach his disciples. If you ever wanted to kind of do a little study on this, read through the Gospels. Note, when he does miracles, teachings, and all those things, look at the conversation before with the disciples and after. Almost every time, the disciples are involved. It is, it is for the person being healed. It is for the crowd but it's for the disciples. And you'll be amazed when you start looking for that in the Gospels, you'll realize every single time Jesus is using it to train the disciples. Why? Because they're going to go start this thing called the church and they're going to have conversations like this. They're going to have people walk away. They're going to have people betray them. They're going to have people not believe, right? And if Jesus' personal evangelism led to somebody not being saved, I think we're comforted by the fact that if we share Christ with somebody and they walk away, it's not our fault, Okay? There's so many soul, I remember we used to do soul winning when I was in college. I went to a church. We had to go up after we did our visitation. We'd go in. People start sharing all their stories of what happened. It was cool. Except for the times that you'd sit down and you shared Christ with five people that night and nobody did anything. And all these people talking about, oh, so-and-so got saved and so-and-so. And you're cheering. That's great. And then they're like, well, how'd your night go? And I'm like, well. And then you share it. And they're like, well, I shared Christ but with these five people, but nobody received Christ. And they don't say it, but there's almost like this like, well, well, you blew it. Good job. This isn't sales. There's no quota, right? I did telemarketing in college. Worst 10 days of my life. Hated every... And I think I talked to like 3,000 people in 10 days. I'm not even joking. It was crazy. This isn't sales. This is about sharing the gospel and letting the spirit of God work in people's lives. And so here we see this happen. So this, this conversation takes place. Then he turns to the disciples. And what's the message to the disciples? Jesus tells the disciples that it is extremely difficult for the rich to enter into heaven or to enter into the kingdom of God, which we talked about before. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is reference to the gospel, reference to Christians that will be saved. This is not a literal kingdom. That's a different kingdom. This is the spiritual kingdom. He then makes clear why the rich or wealthy have a hard time submitting to Christ in salvation. And what is the reason why the rich or the wealthy tend to really struggle with submitting to Christ? What did he say in the passage? 
yeah, they're trusting in their riches. And if they're serving mammon, they cannot be a servant of God. That's what Jesus said. You can't have two masters. You're either a slave to your money or a slave to God. And this man chose to continue to be a slave to his possessions. Christ says it is easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So what is Jesus referring to here? We've talked about this a little bit before. Uh, The Persians had an expression of the same concept. And this idea of something being impossible, they would say, it would be easier to put an elephant through the eye of a needle. Now, any of you that are sewers or you've done things like that, you understand getting a piece of thread through the eye of a needle can be extremely difficult. You can, obviously, you see that a camel or a elephant would be impossible, right? The camel was obviously a, a Jewish adaptation to the saying from the Persians. A camel was the largest animal in Israel. So they would not have an elephant, you know, native to their land. So they said a camel because that's a big animal to them. Some say that this was referring to a small door in the gates to the city that a camel would have to crawl through on its knees, that you'd have a city gate, and then in that gate there was this little tiny door, and the camel would have to crawl through on its knees. And they said that was called the eye of the needle. Some would say that to get through that door, a camel would have to lose all of its baggage, unload everything that it had, and go through unburdened. So, man, that sounds real good. That preaches. Jesus was calling this man to unburden himself of all of his possessions so that he could trust and believe. The problem is, and we've mentioned this before, there's no evidence anywhere in history that there was ever such a door in the city of Jerusalem. So there's no evidence that there was a little tiny door. We've seen drawings of it. If you Google it, you'll see pictures of a big door with a little door and people walking around. Oh, that's it. There's no evidence this door ever existed in the time of Christ. So it sounds great. It preaches good but most likely not accurate. So what was Jesus saying then? The most likely explanation is that Jesus was using hyperbole, a figure of speech that exaggerates for emphasis. Jesus used this technique at other times. He referred to a plank in one's eye, Matthew 7, 3 through 5. He also, in Matthew 23, talked about swallowing a camel. I don't think he was being literal. Okay? He was using a figure of speech to exaggerate an emphasis. Jesus used all types of teaching methods. Why? Because he was the greatest teacher. He would use irony. He would use hyperbole. He would use humor. He would want you to think about something in a, in a humorous way to draw home the point. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we over-spiritualize the text and we try to make everything mean something. Unfortunately, again, this is just really hyperbole. It's just showing Not that it's difficult, it's impossible, right? Is it difficult to thread a camel through the eye of a needle or is it impossible to thread a camel through the eye of a needle? Which one? People go, well, it's really, really difficult. It's really, it'd be really difficult to get a camel down on its knees and crawl through a little door. That's difficult, but it's possible. What Jesus said is it's impossible. That's the application at the end of the text. He doesn't say it's really difficult. He says, this is how impossible it is. The disciples themselves cannot believe that this man left without salvation. What would be the problem? You've studied this text. The Jewish people believe that when somebody was wealthy, they were seen as blessed of God. Well, who are blessed of God? Well, the righteous are blessed by God and they must live a righteous life. Therefore, if you are righteous and blessed, then you would obviously believe in Christ and you are saved because you're wealthy. 
We have the same view in our culture today, that people who are seemingly blessed outwardly must be, or seemingly successful on the outside, must be blessed, and therefore they're higher up, they're farther along, they're more likely to be saved. But what does the Bible teach us? The exact opposite. It is the poor in the spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty and their utter inability to do anything to justify themselves to a holy God. The rich man so often is blind to his spiritual poverty because he is proud of his accomplishments and has contented himself with his wealth. He is as likely to humble himself before God as a camel is to crawl through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. So, the disciples are confused and they're astonished. Why? Well, if this man can't be saved, then who can be saved? We're, we're in trouble. That's really what they're thinking. That guy seemingly was blessed. He walked away sad. Jesus didn't even accept him. What are we going to do? We're going to be in trouble. So Jesus seeing this, and I love that it says in verse 26, saying among themselves. Jesus is right there. Wouldn't it be easy to go, okay, listen, time out. <laughs> you mean to tell me that that's not going to happen? So what do we do here? The phrase astonished out of measure is this idea that they were extremely shocked, extremely surprised. They were surprised, literally, it translates to increased, or their surprise, increased exceedingly. Shocked beyond belief. So what does Jesus say? And Jesus, looking upon uh, them, saith, so this is in context to them and the situation. So everything he says after this, we cannot take for anything other than what it fits in the context. With men, it is impossible. What is impossible with men? Salvation. Specifically, this rich man coming to Christ, even though he was rich. It's impossible, humanly speaking. But not with God. For with God, what things are possible? All things. That means if it's God's will, it will happen. So how do we take this? Well, you can go over it real quick. You can turn to Luke 19. We'll get there in just a moment. And I know we're over time, but we're going to finish this up tonight. So Jesus says here, and we'll read Luke 19 in just a moment. With man, it is impossible, but with God, it is possible because it is God that works in us and draws us to repentance. This verse is really the key to the passage. With God, all things are possible. Now, this verse has been quoted and misused countless times. Let me just give you a few examples. Can I lose 20 pounds in a week? Answer, with God, all things are possible. Can I get a promotion at work? Answer, with God, all things are possible. Will I ever get married? With God, all things are possible. I will never play golf like them. Answer, with God, all things are possible. Do you see how ridiculous that sounds when you really think about what the context actually says? We rob this verse of its power when we bring it down to such a surface understanding. Jesus was saying that salvation is impossible. With God, we can be saved and when we, tr when we trust in his gospel. So is it difficult or is it impossible for mankind to be saved of their own merit, to humble themselves? It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Luke chapter 18, or Luke chapter 19. Look at verse 1. I should turn there. That's a good idea. Let me turn there. Luke chapter 18, or 19, I keep doing that. Luke chapter 19, look at verse 1. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was what? 
Rich. What's a publican again? If you have a different translation, I translated it. Tax collector. So how did he get rich? Not just collecting taxes, taking a little bit for himself, right? We mentioned this before. They were allowed to charge a base tax, and then whatever you wanted to charge over that, you can. So he was just ripping people off. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press because he was little of stature. So this famous song, I was feel bad for this guy, climbs one tree in his life most likely to see Jesus, and now he's just like labeled as the short guy who wanted to see Jesus, okay? A wee little man, okay? How, like, I want to get to heaven, and he's probably going to be like 5'8". Like, he's probably like 5'9". He's not like short. Anyway, okay. What if he's like 4'6"? I'd be like, wow, you are a wee little man. All right. And he ran before and climbed up into a, a sycamore tree to see him, for he was uh, to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide in thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be the guest of a man that was a sinner. We're all sinners, but again, tax collectors in the Jewish culture, worst kind of sinner. The only thing that was a step up from a sinner was a prostitute. Or from a tax collector, as far as sinners go, was a prostitute. So harlot, then tax collector in the scale of worst sins. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to thy house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, why did I read this specific one? Well, it was a rich man. That's why you tied it in. Go, go to Luke 18. What's the story there in the parallel passage? Luke 18, 18. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit into life? Not so long after, this rich young man said, I want to get eternal life. And Jesus says, Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Follow me. He walks away sad. He tells the disciples, It's impossible for a rich man to be saved. Within a short amount of time, what do we read about? A rich man being saved. By the way, Jesus initiated that conversation. Zacchaeus just wanted to see him. Jesus began the conversation. Sometimes people ask Jesus. Other times Jesus pursues them as far as the conversation. Notice too, of his own choice, he decided to give stuff to the poor and to give back what he stole. Not just two times over, but fourfold. And Jesus' response is, today salvation has come to this house. You see, with God, all things are possible. There is no one that cannot be saved. Anyone can be saved. If they will humble themselves, submit to Christ as Lord, repent of their sins, and trust in him. It is impossible in our understanding, but it's very possible with God. And he shows us that even in this text. So again, just a word of encouragement to you guys as we think about that. As you go out and you begin to witness and you share your faith, I know that people will shoot you down. They'll, they'll disregard you. They'll, they'll not want to believe. But we don't take that to heart for us. We just continue to preach Christ. Because with man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And he can save anyone at any time. And so just an encouragement to you this evening. When we share the gospel, let's make sure we're sharing the gospel. Inviting people to be followers of Christ. Not to health and wealth and, you know, all those stuff that we hear preached. But to say, no, if you'll submit to Christ, he'll lead you. There'll be peace. There'll be joy. But also, you're a follower of Christ wherever that takes you. So again, just a word of encouragement to you. So let's, uh, we'll close in prayer. 
And if you have any questions or comments on this, please see me after. I'd love to talk more about that if I can help in any way. But let's pray, and we'll ask the Lord to be with us as we go our separate ways. Father, we thank you for this evening. And Lord, I thank you that when I was lost and undone, unable to save myself, unable to trust in you, Lord, this rich young man trusted in his riches, but Lord, we trust in so many things. We trust in ourselves, our self-righteousness, our pride. And Lord, ultimately, when we refuse to humble ourselves, when we refuse to submit under your mighty hand, that we cannot receive the grace that you extend to us in salvation. So Father, I pray that you would just help us to know that as we go forth to witness and to share our faith, that there will be those that will never believe. They just refuse to humble themselves. And Lord, I, I know if it's family members or friends, we love them, we care for them, we, we see them in love, but we can't change the message. We can't change what the word says. So because we love them, we share our faith with them. We share the truth of the gospel with them. But Lord, I'm so thankful that there are those who believe. There are those that are drawn to repentance. And so, Lord, again, thank you for doing that work. Thank you for working in our hearts. Holy Spirit, we thank you for doing the work that we can't do in just humanly sharing words, but that you empower the word to do that work, to convict the world of sin and righteousness, to draw them unto repentance, which leads to eternal life. And so I just pray that you'd help us to share our faith, but also to be okay with whatever the result is, to not burden ourselves with trying to just get someone saved, but to share our faith and to let you do the work. Because with, with us and our understanding in our minds, it's impossible. But with you, it's possible because you save, you convert. And so thank you for calling us to be your witnesses as your disciples, I pray we would learn from this lesson. And I pray that we in this room would not trust in the things of this world, in our possessions and in our stuff. Some here have been blessed tremendously and have great blessings and great wealth. Others have maybe not been as blessed in this world. Lord, but really, ultimately, it's all for you. So I pray that we would hold on to our stuff with an open hand, willing to surrender it at any moment because it's all for you and for your glory. Father, again, give us application in this. Give us wisdom in this by the working of your spirit and that we would live differently, being conformed to the image of Christ. Father, we thank you for all this and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, don't forget, before you guys are dismissed, Wednesday night, no evening service, just for Thanksgiving. And then we'll see you guys Sunday morning. 10.30 a.m. So have a happy Thanksgiving and we'll see you guys Sunday.